0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Livewire's Rules of Investing. I'm your host and editor at Livewire, Patrick Polk. Today's special guest is Charlie Jamison, Chief Investment Officer at Jamison Coote Bonds. Charlie spent nearly 13 years trading rates and bonds for Merrill Lynch in Sydney, London, New York and Tokyo before setting up JCB almost five years ago. In the full interview, we discuss the truth and fictions of the Bond Kano narrative, what it would take for US rates to hit 5%, and his experience trading US dollar bonds on September 11th, 2001. Don't forget to subscribe to us on iTunes, follow us on Twitter at LivewireMarkets, and visit our website, LivewireMarkets.com. I hope you enjoy the show. Charlie welcome to the show. Thanks a lot Patrick. Why don't we uh, jump straight into it and I want to talk a bit about your history and how you kind of came to be where you are today. So I noticed that you had a bit of an interesting experience uh, earlier on in your career that I was hoping you could tell us a little bit about. Um, What were you doing on September 11th 2001?
1: Uh, September 11th, 2001 is a, a pretty horrible day in world history. Uh, I was managing US Treasury portfolios for Merrill Lynch in London. I'd moved there about three weeks prior from New York, uh, where I used to walk through the World Trade Center every morning, uh, into the Merrill Lynch building, which was just next door at number one financial tower. I was sitting on the, uh, on the desk uh, and the guy sitting next to me was a guy called Phil Hodgins, who was on the phone to a broker at Canna Fitzgerald and he said, oh that's weird, the phone's just gone dead. And we looked up on the screens and we could see the World Trade Center was burning and obviously had been hit by the first plane and clearly the guy that he was talking to was no longer alive. And it was a pretty harrowing day, I guess, um, you know, not a good day in world history and a pretty horrible thing to, to have to kind of go through early on in my career. I guess thereafter, you know, as I learned tremendous amount through that period, um, our offices were uninhabitable in New York and so we needed to run the US Treasury business from London um, and uh, yeah, it was, it was horrible actually. Just thinking back on it actually makes me a little bit um, emotional to be honest. But I guess the, the major takeaway that I would probably leave with investors is just to remind them how quickly um, things can change for the negative. It takes a long time for markets to price in good news, and a long time for things to improve. Um, but negative shocks can can come very quickly and, and happen, You know, really change the world tremendously. And I guess that points back to what we continuously kind of uh, remind investors that, you know, you've got to have a diversified portfolio to, to be able to kind of ride these shocks and, and these really unknown unknowns that can appear from, from basically nowhere.
0: Definitely, it sounds um, horrible experience but i imagine it would have been very formative for you in terms of how you think about uh, about the world and about markets yeah
1: look i guess my international background i um i had to go through a few periods like this i guess um you know managing big european uh, portfolios through the, the gfc and then the euro crisis and then the greek crisis a lot of that stuff seemingly passed over australian investors clearly there were episodes where you know markets were more challenged but We were really at the epicenter of a lot of that stuff Um, and you know obviously in those markets too we had very uh, violent uh, you know rate hiking and rate cutting cycles so incredible experience for me I guess as a a bond uh, investor and certainly uh, a lot of you know experiences that we look back on and continue to draw on as we look at the world today and I guess we'll we'll get
0: into that uh, as we get through the podcast. Yeah well let's talk a little bit about the world today then it was only probably I think two weeks ago maybe that Jamie Diamond mentioned that he thought that the US ten year could hit five percent. What's your view on the US ten year? What's the highest level you think it could get to? And what would need to change in the world to, for us to get to that point?
1: Look, uh, obviously you know Jamie Diamond is probably the best banker in the world, so this uh, is a comment that needs to be you know really considered by investors. Uh, I think 5% is a a pretty emotive type level. And I guess um, I'm told on very good authority that JP Morgan have a tremendously large short position in interest rates at the moment, which is good. If he believes that, that's absolutely the position he should have. Uh, Or maybe, you know, be that as it may, he's talking his book a little bit. But look, I think you've got to join the dots with this to try and get to 5%. The world would have to change tremendously. Uh, We know from kind of 50 or 60 years of cycle dynamics that... In order for the the yield levels to get up to those types of numbers, we would have to see tremendously aggressive additional Fed rate hiking. Uh, And we're already kind of seeing at the moment, you know, through the emerging markets and and some of these kind of spot fire uh, type crises we've had this year already over the course of 2018, volatility implosion in February, big problems in Italy uh, in May. A number of smaller spot fires in emerging markets, which have really uh, you know, culminated in this Turkey situation, which is now bleeding out to you know, South Africa, Pakistan, Indonesia, that um, you know, if interest rates continue to rise, particularly you know, wh- whilst the rest of the world stays very low, it puts a tremendous amount of pressure on people that have borrowed in US dollars. And that's what really we're really going through at the moment. We don't think that interest rates, uh, in terms of a 10-year yield level, would would be able to kind of settle anything above three and a quarter, three and a half. There's been a tremendous amount of talk uh, this year about the 3% level in 10-year treasuries. You've got to say everything's gone perfectly wrong for the bond market this year. We've had huge amounts of supply because of Trump's tax cuts. We've had huge amounts of inflation expectation uh, and pretty weak price action. And yet be that as it may you know we've had 10 or 11 days only uh, sitting here on the 16th of of August where we've been above that 3% level so there is clearly very strong demand uh, from you know investors all around the world for bonds in and around that and I think you know what we're going through with the emerging markets at the moment uh, and as we get into this later cycle environment that we keep hearing about it's unlikely in our opinion that we're going to get that explosive crescendo type sell-off so we're very comfortable that the majority of damage that uh, duration can do for portfolios is now complete. We've always been of the mindset that um, that you know certainly after a 30 year run of, of you know long-term interest rates coming down and declining, being tremendously supportive for all asset prices not only in bonds but very obviously in property, very obviously for equities in discount rates. It's very unlikely that we're going to find a, a low and then you know, immediately reverse aggressively. We're, we're more than likely from a secular point of view to build a long period of consolidation where we stay low. Clearly, you know, the market's oscillated in a range. You know, the bulls try and uh, and, and justify when the markets are rallying why the, the bull market is not over. The bears, are, you know, constantly on watch for, for yields moving higher. Uh, I guess we believe that the, the market is going to be fairly range bound. And, and, you know, we're very likely to oscillate around these, you know, new fair value points that we've essentially explored for 2 years now after brexit we're still of the belief that the federal reserve won't be able to hike much beyond 3% that's been their best estimation via the dot plot series that they provide to the markets and so thinking through the markets in that way uh, and i think every investor has to have an opinion on on where you know the the terminal rate what will be the interest rate of the federal reserve overnight rate when they finish hiking rates uh, then if we can find that level we can make much better estimations about where the bond market might be and as i said you know anybody that's seen us present over the course of this year will have seen these charts we can show you you know 50 or 60 years of cycle history regardless of the level of interest rates uh, that ten-year yields will be at or below the terminal fed funds rate when it's finally achieved so that is the 64 million dollar question how far can the fed go before they put the squeeze on credit markets, before they put the squeeze on emerging markets, before we complete the credit cycle and the business cycle. Uh, And and, you know, where you've got to remember where hiking interest rates, it's punitive. People that have borrowed a lot of money are asked to pay more, and they're also asked to refinance and roll forward at much higher rates. And so we'll get into that obviously throughout this uh, this show, but um, you know, we think there are limitations as to how far we can go with that. Uh, often in you know very simple terms try to explain this in the, the way that we had the world's biggest ever debt bubble uh, before we went into the financial crisis and through the period from june 2004 to june 2006 the federal reserve hiked interest rates 425 basis points so 17 25 basis point rate rises over 24 months exactly it took about 12 months uh, of additional time for that credit cycle and that credit delinquency to build on those higher funding rates. And then the system blew up entirely and the, the financial plumbing of the global network was, was completely blocked and it was clearly a very uh, difficult time. In response to that, uh, essentially the, in the Western world, in the developed world, we cut interest rates to zero, you know, thinking, uh, you know, the US, Japan, Europe, actually negative. And in response, because of zero interest rates, it was very attractive to lend or to to borrow money. So borrowers uh, utilized debt markets very, very aggressively. And we know that a lot of corporates have issued a lot of debt to do equity buybacks and the like. Uh, But essentially we've doubled the size of the the debt load globally, but critically we've done that and the, the doubling has happened off a zero lower bound interest rate. And so now the Federal Reserve tell us that with twice the load on our backs, they can now hike interest rates 300 basis points from zero to three uh, percent, but everything will be fine despite going on 72% of the journey with twice the load. Now we know that the entire system failed last time around with with less load, slightly longer journey. But if we think about this as, as a hill climb, I just think that you know markets are going to have had some cert, uh, some serious uh, you know heart palpitations. <laughs> halfway up that hill because it is a tremendous debt load that we now need to, to carry and a, a tremendous debt burden to bear. Uh, and you know, But it is very likely to, to all come with a lag. And I guess that's the frustrating thing about late cycle environments. It's uh, if you de-risk too early, you can look foolish because returns late in the cycle can be very, very robust. But if you hang on too long, you can look very foolish because the asymmetry of the way asset markets work, they can sell off very, very aggressively as we're seeing in emerging markets at the moment with, you know, vast currency depreciation and, and asset depreciation uh, that we're now experiencing.
0: Up the stairs and down the elevator, as they say.
1: Exactly, exactly.
0: If anybody from the audience is curious, if you jump on LiveWire Markets and have a look at the, at the wire for this podcast, you should find those charts. You kind of touched on it a little bit there. I'd like to explore this in a little bit more detail, though. There's a perception particularly amongst some equity investors, that rising bond yields will cause a, a bond cano that's going to wipe out the returns for bond investors as yields rise from their all-time lows. Uh, so, a bit of a two-part question about that. So first of all, what truth is there in the argument and is there any bits of that which are right? And secondly, what are those people missing and what's wrong about that argument?
1: Look, there's absolutely truth to it, uh, but it's cookie-cutted in a way that is very convenient for those that like to push this story. So, uh, yes, if you own 30-year bonds and yields rise tremendously, you will have immediate capital losses. I think the interesting thing in your question is that you asked from the investor's point of view. So it's important that we differentiate investors from speculators because they've clearly got very different time horizons. Interestingly, if you're an investor, the best thing that can happen to you in the long run as a bond investor is that yields rise and continue to rise because it is an income-based product. And so as crazy as that sounds, yes, there will be some capital slippage very early on, but that is more than made up by the higher incomes you receive over future dates. So there's a little bit of a misnomer in this one, but if you are a speculator, sure, if interest rates rise 100 basis points tomorrow, there is capital damage and if you were on the short side of that trade, you would be able to profit from it. The problem in all of this is that, you know, fixed income is not a homogenous product and so in saying that, you know, the equity market's going to go down, that doesn't mean that every company on the exchange goes down, some of them go up, you know, some of them are really doing very well despite the bad macro backdrop and so we need to give due consideration to the fixed income market in a similar way. I guess what's very interesting for us at the moment, particularly in the US, is that for the first time in 10 years, we have this new asset class called cash. Cash is now actually investable again, where it has been at zero for basically a decade. So yes, if you bought very long dated bonds in isolation and yields rose very quickly, there would be an initial shock. But thereafter, you know, you would be in a good position if you held on. And certainly, you know, if you added, you you could do very well because incomes would be much higher from from the yields that you could find. But if you bought short dated instruments, so say you were to buy two year treasuries in the United States at the moment. Now today they yield around about 2.6%. Let's assume that you buy them today and immediately yields back up 100 basis points. So they go up to 3.6%. Your total return over the first year on that investment would be plus 0.8%, right? Because the, the, the capital damage is not enough to defray the income that you will receive and if you were to hold that bond to maturity your return would be around about 1.7 percent assuming that the market didn't move thereafter you know clearly we look we're an active manager uh, and we pride ourselves on being an active manager I guess through our journey to date uh, in the Australian markets with you know three full years of, of calendar years of history to kind of point to we've had periods where bonds have been very popular Clearly after Brexit and with the Federal Reserve hiking and the the delivery of Trump to markets, bonds have been selling off for a couple of years now, roughly. And our results have been positive the whole way through. I guess we've had years where we've done better than worse. Uh, And so we're talking about a product that is incredibly high in credit quality and liquidity, which I think is very important and investors need to think that through, particularly as we're starting to see uh, some of these kind of offerings that have been in the market, the absolute return type offerings. There's one in particular which is just frozen. Clearly there are some fairly low quality instruments inside of that and so you know we've kind of always remind investors to make sure that the funds they're investing in are fit for purpose and you're not being misled as to the real uh, risks that are inside some of these assets.
0: So is that a is that an Australian product you're referring to, or is it? It's a an international product.
1: Raised a lot of money here. Uh, it's been quite topical. I won't mention the the fund in particular, but anybody that uh, knows their markets or spends some time navigating this space, it would be fairly identifiable. It's been in the media. Uh, so yeah, I think you know investors just need to consider this, uh, the bond cano scenario. Look, you've got to also remember that. the the fall in interest rates has been the reason that so many asset classes have done very well. It's been a one-off repricing, uh, and it works equally and probably more powerful in reverse because of this up the staircase down the fire pole nature. So yes, uh, as much as if we had vast increases in interest rates, it would be tough initially for bond portfolios. The damage would be very slight realistically in a portfolio context if you didn't hold an individual security. Uh, Whereas the damage that could be, you know, wrought on property markets or or, or things that are a little bit more illiquid, uh, you know, in in, um, recalibrating cap rates and these types of things, you know, you could see vast capital destruction. Uh, And so we've got to think about this in a kind of relative value construct. Yes, it wouldn't be good. And bonds are absolutely supposed to defend and protect. Um, but you know uh, I think that we all kind of agree with the debt loads that we are facing in the world it's very difficult for interest rate markets to explode higher like that and if they do it would be in response I I guess to uh, some kind of secular inflation rather than cyclical inflation and in response to that it's very likely that central banks if they were to be true to their inflation mandates would raise interest rates very quickly And I think we can all agree that that would be pretty challenging for asset markets in general.
0: Do you mind explaining how it is that bond rates affect other asset classes and and why it is that you say that the falling bond rates have helped prop up those and uh, increase returns of, some, of many other, all, sure. all other asset classes really.
1: So I guess, you know, day one of your economics degree uh, at university, you know, you've got to learn about the risk-free rate of return in an economy. And so in a developed market where there is not a huge amount of implicit credit risk, like you'd see in an emerging market, the risk-free rate of return is the government bond yield. Now, you know, rightly or wrongly, uh, sometime, or sometimes we wish they would, governments don't die. You know, they mutate to a different form, even when they get very challenged. And the reason that they're considered to be risk-free is they can always tax their citizens. Clearly, you know, you've had examples like Greece, where austerity has been tremendously uh, you know, punished, uh, punitive on, on, on people and, and the economy. But regardless, it does raise revenue and can repay government debts. That's a very extreme example, Greece. Clearly, in Australia, we, we would never expect to get anywhere near that. But then that then calibrates all returns in the economy. How much can you, you know, return in, in excess terms over the risk-free rate? And clearly, if the risk-free rate is coming down, if you think about something like a, like a house, everyone understands roughly what a mortgage is and how the housing market works. Let's say you earn and take home after-tax $1,000 a week, uh, and, but interest rates at 20%. Well, clearly, there's only so much money that you can borrow to be able to service that 20% loan repayment. All of a sudden you wake up the next day and you still earn $1,000 a week after tax, but interest rates are now 5%. Well, theoretically, you could service four times as much debt on the same amount of debt repayment. And unsurprisingly, when you go down to the bank and they say, Joe and Jenny Average, you could borrow more. Well, it's not, you know, human nature is to say, well, actually I would like to buy that house down the road, which is a bit nicer than the one that I was looking at. I think I will, I can afford it. You know, my my income allows for me to service that debt. So why wouldn't I? And, and you can clearly see very quickly how things like property have, have just been in this tremendous bull run because as interest rate levels have come down and, and essentially mortgage rates have come down in relation to those levels, uh, we've been able to, to gorge on, on debt. And certainly Australians have really utilize that to its full. We have the second highest household uh, debt to to income levels in the world, which makes us now, you know, that's all been lovely while we've all been going through the positive part of that. The negative part of it is that those debts do need to be repaid at some stage, at the moment they are collateralized with the housing asset, So that is the thing that guarantees the debt, but the debt also needs to be serviced. And so, you know, people that have 4% mortgages Well, look in Jamie Dimon's example, if interest rates were to jump up, you know, 300 basis points from here, would you be able to afford your mortgage if interest rates tomorrow mortgage rates go up to 7%? You still only earn $1,000 a week. Where are you going to find all of that additional repayment monies that you, you know, require to service your debts? And so here is where we can kind of probably start to talk about the credit cycle to some degree and the way that the cycle, uh, you know, leads and lags and and the effects that it... um, that it can certainly bring but yeah you can quickly see you know again in equity market valuation we need to think about what is the risk-free rate what is the discount rate we need to use to uh, you know when we're looking at, at, you know, at our net present value type calculations and and in terms of you know um, doing our forward forecasts and so you know all markets whether they like it or not interest rates are just the, the virus that affect all asset classes you simply cannot get away from them uh, and they are very important and so you know even for those investors listening to this that are not that interested in fixed income I really do think it's something that you should be watching because it is uh, something that is in very important in the way that the financial system is
0: plumbed together You're spot on there. The cycle is exactly what I wanted to talk about next Let's start with the basics. Could you just explain first of all what the credit cycle is And then maybe tell us a little bit about where you think we are in the in the cycle at the moment.
1: Sure. So again, we've got a really good chart in our decks, which we've been using for some time to try and and illustrate to investors how this works. And we'll make it available to to go up online. Essentially, it's a debt clock looking at the cycle and, you know, really 40,000 foot view of the world, very slow moving. Uh, And I think, you know, everybody can understand that in a recession, Clearly, you know, banks generally get very concerned about credit quality and they start to tighten, you know, the the terms on which what they will lend. They generally ask for, uh, you know, higher covenants for the loans. So probably lower, you know, loan to valuation ratios if we think about this again from a a property market point of view. Uh, And they get very selective as who they're willing to lend to and credit conditions clearly tighten. In a recession, you know, clearly we're going through a period where we've got very low confidence, you know, we're generally suffering some uh, asset price decay. And so in response, you know, we generally get the policy settings of the day eased, you know, whether that's interest rate cuts to make loans more affordable and more attractive, uh, and or, you know, uh, you know, more uh, fiscal type measures or, or the like. In the last recession, we also got liquidity measures like quantitative easing and things that we hadn't seen previously. But those policy adjustments they clearly help, and it takes time to move through into the economy. Uh, but that generally will, will start, once the economy start to heal, that will be the start of the credit cycle. And so as asset valuations calm down uh, and the economic data starts to pick up a little bit because of those policy adjustments, then banks start to loosen the reins a little bit and they're happy to lend again. But generally early in the cycle, they still require lots of covenants, and they're fairly cautious in all of that. As the economy continues to, you know, to con- continues to heal, uh, you know, it's a competitive landscape, and a few uh, institutions might loosen the reins a little bit more. And in order to keep up, everybody loosens the reins a little bit. And in terms of the quality of lending, will start to deteriorate, and the margin that's required in order to make those loans decreases because there's more confidence that everybody can, you know, carry this debt burden. And that, that generally means we come into a very, uh, you know, long and uh, and fairly uh, productive part of the cycle for investors, where assets generally do very well. People are re-leveraging and using debt normally to their advantage, uh, and the economy grows, and it's growing very organically on type animal spirits type behaviour. Later in that cycle, you know, clearly people that that are participating early on, you know, things are healing, and they really do have the economic wind at their back. But later in the cycle when the cycle becomes tired in an organic way there are always people that have overcommitted themselves and certainly and the banks as well you know are very guilty of this and in terms of uh the quality of the loans that they are willing to accept generally decay and, and they you know they clearly need to provide growth to the market and show growth and we're going through one of those periods now i think um you know, you've made some some uh, you know comments here, we were going to talk about high debt markets, uh, high yield markets and uh, the leveraged loan markets. The covenants uh, in terms of what's being asked for, in terms of the credit quality in, in US markets in particular, has dropped considerably. So the quality of these loans is not only a lot lower in terms of the assets that stand behind them, but the compensation that the lender is getting is also falling because credit spreads have been contracting by a long way. At the end of the cycle, you know, again, when we get to this full capacity type point in the economy like we are in it with the United States at the moment, you know, the markets get concerned about inflationary pressures coming through. The central bank starts to raise interest rates in expectation of those inflationary pressures, knowing full well that their actions go to market with a, with a fairly long lag time. And so, uh, you know, we're going through that at the moment. Uh, and that starts to challenge those that are over their skis a little bit. Those that are overcommitted, committed, uh, that are you know, maybe going hand to mouth with cash flows. They don't have liquidity stored up uh, and unsurprisingly things start to tighten up. Now we're feeling that very much at the moment in Australia where credit conditions have tightened for different reasons, from you know, APRA reasons, from Royal, uh, Royal Commission type reasonings. But also critically because the Federal Reserve are making the international cost of capital go up And Australian banks are still a little bit, uh, you know, um, still required, about 30% of their loan book is funded from offshore. And so as that money gets more expensive, they're not in the business of absorbing those costs. They are passing them through to their customers in the format of out of cycle mortgage rate hikes. So if we look back over the last few years, we know the RBA have been on hold now in terms of the cash rate for more than two years, but mortgage rates have just been edging up and up and up. And we're not going in 25 basis point kind of steps, but we're going in 10, 15, 10, depending on you know, whether the banks have been behaving or not in, in the general public, depends on what they can get away with. Obviously there's a, there's a PR element to all of this from their point of view. Uh, and clearly they've you know, been a bit challenged as a result of the Royal Commission. So they might be on hold with some of this and absorb some of this for a little while. But you know, those conditions are tightening. And so clearly for those that are over committed, it becomes challenging now. A great example, I have a very good friend who's recently lost his job because the company that he was working for, the owner tried to refinance versus his house, couldn't refinance, didn't have enough cash and liquidity stored up, and the business has become insolvent. So, you know, we're still, we'll see more of this at this point in the cycle. It's kind of sad. Uh, it's a shame that people don't know more about the cycle and spend more time thinking about it uh, because clearly, you know, the Federal Reserve seem very committed to staying on this path. Uh, we're only you know, in, in the middle, or, t- or you know, we'll talk about where we are in, in their cycle, but um, you know, it looks like they're very committed to continuing on this road. And we know later in that cycle, as we, we talked about earlier, 2004 to 2006, it really didn't kick off for you know, borrowers and lenders in terms of credit decay and quality until 2000, and, well, we were seeing it in 2006, but it really got going and asymmetric repricing of risk assets you know, through 2007 in credit markets which they'd bled out into equities in 2008. So it's something that we do need to be very conscious of.
0: The RBA has been on hold for, what, two years now, I think. The last time they cut would have been August 2016, and the last time they raised, I think, is more like eight years ago, a very long time now. Up until very recently, the vast majority of commentators were suggesting that the next move would be up, but not until 2019 or 2020. What's changed recently and why have why have some of those those views started favoring either no move or some people are even suggesting cuts now
1: yeah look i think um we we love it when we get you know the the strategists and the economists that make these vast predictions they never get their feet held to the fire but they've all uh kind of scurried back into the the hole that they came from with rate hike predictions Uh, you know we've just not seen it as a possible uh, scenario here for a number of reasons i guess the level of indebtedness now has been become so high and the interest rate sensitivity around that in a period where Australians are just not experiencing any kind of material wages growth uh, has meant for us that the RBA are really quite snookered and it's a problem of their own making. They probably cut too far, wasn't required in 2016 uh, as much as they did and now they've really got themselves a little bit snookered as we're getting into this later cycle environment we're starting to see concern in the international markets particularly around emerging markets and the like uh, i think you know we don't hear too much about synchronized global growth anymore that was a very popular narrative at the end of last year there's been a vast desynchronization early this year european data was really very very poor indeed asian data mixed and and the us just keeps on keeping on it's really uh, enjoying this uh, you know this kind of sugar rush high from the tax cuts of late last year and the fiscal stimulus. Uh, we, we fully expect that to slow down at some point. Uh, but I think that you know, there should always be some uh, symmetry around you know, the movement of the RBA cash rate. Clearly things can go wrong, as we touched on early in the podcast. Things can come out of nowhere uh, you know, where they would need to respond. I think it's interesting that they've dropped uh, you know, in the statement kind of uh, terminology. They said that the next movement is likely to be higher. They've now removed that altogether. Uh, and it's clearly, you know, there is some concern around the housing situation in Australia. Now, we know that, you know, housing, uh, it's a tremendously uh, powerful confidence effect through the economy. Uh, a lot of people in the last few years have made more money probably by going to sleep every night than they have by going to work, which is a fairly unusual setup for, uh, for you know, the world as we find it. But as that is starting to reverse, it's, it's the pace of that reversal which could really, you know, kind of come... Uh, Home to roost and so you know, we're not predicting a recession or anything like that here in Australia I think uh, the Australian economy is grinding forward. Okay It's very contingent on high immigration levels to prop up those nominal GDP type numbers But there are pockets of stress. We've seen them in you know, in the Brisbane real estate market We're seeing them in Western Sydney now where loan distress is on the rise fairly quickly and when we think through you know, what's been driving consumption how much of consumption has been a withdrawal from that housing ATM? You know, where they've had this vast on paper wealth accretion year over year as housing has continued to to, to run pretty hard. Uh, How much have people been, you know, cashing that in in terms of consumption? And what does that look like going forward if housing is to stop rising or actually decay? And so we've seen some decay through the winter period. It'll be really interesting, I think, to see how the spring market performs and if buyers step up and, and, you know, stabilize this complex a little bit. Clearly credit uh, is still, you know, credit standards have been tightened materially. Uh, I heard uh, a few weeks ago that more than half of loan applications are now being rejected at the first pass because uh, questions like, you know, what do you spend on a monthly basis? You can no longer reply $500 when you have a $5,000 credit card bill. I think the banks have worked out that they need to reconcile those two and suggest that maybe you're spending a bit more than you're telling us. Uh, and so there is some tightness there, but um, yeah, it'll be very interesting to see how that, how that plays out. Um, you know, the concern that we could, well, we might be at peak cycle, you know, in terms of the global cycle, I think is something that we do need to consider. If the US is to roll over and we are at the top of the cycle, you've got to remember that there is no fiscal stimulus that can be provided to the US economy now those bullets have been fired and they've been fired in full Uh, we've written a lot about uh, you know kind of the the craziness of of stimulating at this point in the cycle you know you use fiscal stimulus to help rebalance the economy under Keynesian economics when we hit uh, rough patches and that's when you increase government spending to try and smooth the cycle Trump has just all and out gone the bazooka right at the top of the cycle when the private sector's been doing pretty well. And unsurprisingly, you know, the data that's been coming in is, is looking really good. If tax receipts roll over and we do hit that top of the cycle moment, and whether that comes, bleeds through via, you know, the emerging market complex or some credit delinquency, auto loans is one that's often discussed, student loans, that, you know, there are pockets that we, we do watch and, can, and, and you know, kind of consider. Uh, then the fiscal position of the United States will move to a very in a pretty high budgetary deficit position very quickly and that means that there can't be an easy fiscal stimulus thereafter so we'd be thinking about the Federal Reserve being finished in terms of their hiking cycle clearly they can respond with a monetary policy response by cutting interest rates or they can respond with a liquidity response by starting quantitative easing again uh, and so we're very much on on look for that look out for that But I think, you know, should that transpire, and we were to get a a rise in unemployment in Australia, you know, we could get ourselves into a a fairly nasty downward spiral fairly quickly, particularly given the debt loads that are outstanding. And if the delinquency on that was to rise, we know that when banks, you know, provision for bad and doubtful debts, they tend to do it very aggressively. Uh, They try and get all their dirty laundry out into public in, in one foul swoop. But it's this asymmetry that we, we kind of talk to all the time about the way that things can come unraveled very quickly that we need to consider. And so I think the markets are realizing that that's not improbable, that we could have a, re- a reasonable global slowdown come 2019. Certainly by 2020, there's now a lot of economists predicting that the US could be in recession by 2020. Uh, and so the market's looking forward and saying, well, look, we really can't see the RBA doing anything in the very short term. But as we look further down the road and kind of over that bump in in the distance what might be on the road for us there and if you know the federal reserve stop hiking interest rates that probably means the us dollar comes off our dollar would go up which also tightens the economy here for us it's not good for exports tourism education all these things that are tremendously uh benefit tremendously under a lower dollar kind of scenario look the rba could easily be cutting you know in order to redress that balance so Um, from our point of view we just don't see the rba doing anything we think they're they're pretty stuck in the mud for now Uh, but certainly there is a a real symmetry as to what the next move could be on the flip side if the us if the australian dollar does depreciate materially and get down into the you know the 60s mid to low 60s the rba could hike and you know we've written about that and we're we're open to that possibility i think that's the, the mechanism the easiest path towards a rate hike it would be very good for the economy to get the currency down there, it would certainly restore some of our international competitiveness, uh, and that might be justified. So, you know, we would expect the economy to be doing better at that point. It depends why we get down there. If it's an emerging market crisis, maybe not so much. Uh, but if we get down there in and of our, uh, you know, in, in a normalized way, then, you know, the RBA could look to hike. But uh, that looks some ways off for now.
0: There's a bit of an obsession in, well, it's not just in Australia, It's it seems to be across global markets in watching that nation's uh, core cash rate, which makes sense based on what we were discussing before about the risk-free rate. In Australia, though, it's interesting, as you mentioned earlier, about 30% of our bank's funding costs come from overseas, which means that our mortgage rates, which are very important in this country, are uh, closely tied to those overseas rates. So do you think that the RBA cash rate is actually as important as all this coverage is suggests, or should we be paying more attention to the bank bill swap rate?
1: You know, you're dead right here. The, it, I mean, the, where funding actually clears is the all important mechanism in the economy. So as much as the RBA cash rate essentially targets a level, Clearly the markets uh, have their own uh, interpretation of all of this and and demand and supply lines up to provide uh, essentially a funding rate where the banks can fund themselves and then they need to obviously make a margin to represent the credit risk which uh, each individual lender represents uh, and then on lend that money. So you're dead right. I think funding is something that we do need to pay more attention to. Funding rates have been rising pretty consistently over this year. They do bounce around a bit depending on where we are, there's a little bit of window dressing, say around quarter end and financial year end, where banks might do a little bit of window dressing to to clean up the way that their results might be presented to the market. Um, But yeah, it is something we need need to pay a lot more attention to. Now, you know, we feel that, um, you know, if we look at, at funding markets around the world this year, early this year, you know, whether that's because of a crowding out effect of Uh, much larger US uh, bond and and Treasury bill issuance, or whether it was because of repatriation of US dollars back into the US under this, uh, you know, this kind of, uh, you know, um, tax-free window that Trump was offering. LIBOR rates, which is essentially where banks in London can fund themselves, rose tremendously over and above what the Federal Reserve had essentially raised interest rates by. They raised, they they, uh, rose about three times as much. As the federal reserve was hiking interest rates and so we do need to kind of think this through because certainly you know we saw in the last crisis these levels can move materially higher because there still is some implicit credit element to them uh, and so we do need to kind of think through that in, in you know in uh, in full uh, and it's something investors
0: should pay more attention to let's go back to talking about recession timing again for a minute here there's a bit of talk about there at Out there at the moment about yield curve flatness could you explain first of all what curve flatness means
1: sure so i guess the term structure of interest rates i guess uh, again probably we're in day two of economic uh, macroeconomics in first year university or, or you know late in high school uh, there is essentially a positive sloping yield curve in a normalised environment, where you know if you're borrowing or lending money in the very short term, you have great visibility over where the RBA cash rate would be, uh, and you know that there's not a lot you're not lending your money for a long time, so you don't need a time value of money element to it, and therefore you're normally likely to lend at a fairly low rate in the context of the economy. Whereas if you're committing to uh, to borrowing or lending in a much longer term time frame. You need to be compensated for all of those unknowns over that longer time frame and theoretically the rate of return should be higher. Now clearly uh, you know, in, a, in a term structure the very short dated interest rates in economy are bounded by RB, well, the RBA cash rate uh, and, and those types of things whether that's the Federal Reserve in the US or the RBA here and the expectation for moves in those cash rates. Whereas longer dated interest rates are clearly much more influenced by inflation and inflation expectations. Look, there's supply and demand and there's some macroeconomic things as well there's no singular thing that moves interest rates but predominantly if we were explaining it to people uh, for the first time that's a pretty sensible way to explain it with regard to the yield curve when the federal reserve goes into a hiking cycle what they're doing is they're lifting the price of short-term money now that can have an effect right across the yield curve but what we tend to find is that very early on in that cycle that all interest rates move higher, and we've certainly seen that uh, over the course of this hiking cycle from the Federal Reserve, where all interest rates have been moving higher. But then at some point, longer-dated interest rates get sticky, and they start to slow down a lot. And the reason being is that early in that cycle, the market has vast expectation for inflation uh, outcomes. And so they reprice a lot of things in that expectation. But in raising interest rates, what the Federal Reserve are really doing is they're crushing future inflation expectations because they're lifting the cost of funding in a forward context and that uh, impedes future inflation outcomes. And so the curve starts to flatten. And when we talk about the the curve and the shape of the curve, what we're really talking about here is the uh, interest rate value difference between two points on the curve. So to make it very easy, let's assume that 10-year treasuries in the United States yield 3%. And two-year treasuries yield two percent. Well, then clearly there's a difference between the ten-year point and the two-year point of 100 basis points or one percent. Uh, we've we've kind of noticed, and you would have read a lot probably that the curve has been flattening. And so what we mean by that is that that difference is coming down from 100 basis points to 80 to 60, and it continues to compress. And it generally compresses because the shorter dated interest rates are rising. Now it can it can become flat in in, in a few different ways either the long end can rally because we have an EM crisis or the like or the Federal Reserve you know continue hiking and hiking and hiking and those short dated rates go up to meet longer dated rates but the reason this matters for investors is that when that uh, difference between the 10-year point and the two-year point which we often refer to as the twos tens curve or the two-year ten-year curve for a bit of uh, kind of terminology Every time that has gone zero uh, in the last kind of 50, 60 years, except for one false negative in 1967, we have had a recession within six to nine months thereafter. And the reason being is that funding markets are starting to get expensive and punitive to the point where you know, clearly economic activity slows down and we do get some credit delinquency and, and that's not good for confidence and the whole thing recalibrates and goes into a spiral of its own making. And in response to that, at some point, we start to cut interest rates to, you know, to provide stimulus and those short dated rates come down and those funding rates get easier and the economy can start to heal. So if you're not watching uh, this kind of curve shape, I think it's something that you should certainly be paying attention to. We're still, uh, you know, positive, uh, you know, in the, in the 40-ish kind of uh, level um, in the United States, but bouncing around a bit through this EM crisis. Uh, but certainly it has been trending very very powerfully towards zero and it looks like we should get there roughly if the momentum is to carry on towards the end of the year or early next year uh, and that's I think why you know people are starting to now talk about h2 2019 could be much more challenging uh, for markets if we continue on this this current journey so is
0: zero the danger level or is the danger level sit a bit above zero Are we are we in that danger level yeah, yet?
1: look, I mean, we're certainly approaching it. We wouldn't be stupid enough to put an absolute level on anything. But clearly, if we think about, you know, where we are in the range in the cycle, we're very much getting towards that point. Zero is an obvious level, uh, but it doesn't mean that if you, if you hit zero, it absolutely happens uh, immediately. But certainly around there, you know, we're getting very close to that very late cycle environment where the bond market is now saying, you know, we've, we've, we've noted that you've raised interest rates tremendously in the short dates. The reason that we're not raising long dated interest rates in the same manner is we foresee problems down the road. And so we're very happy to own longer dated duration in that way uh, because it will hopefully defend and protect versus what we think will, will play out. Uh, and certainly that's a period where credit quality and asset quality is absolutely paramount.
0: Well, look, that's the end of our, uh, the main part of the interview. I've got a few regular questions that I like to ask every guest. I've modified one of them specially for you because we normally ask people about companies at this point and I didn't really feel like that was probably within your area of expertise. So let's get into the regular questions, they're a bit of fun. So first of all, could you share with us something that you've read recently, either a book, an article or research that really blew you away?
1: I read uh, a book called *The Reminiscence of a Stockbroker*. It's uh, a book about Jesse Livermore, the famed uh, equity trader of the nineteen twenties, uh, and it was a fascinating read. It, it's very much about investment psychology and price action in markets. Now, uh, that's certainly something that we think pretty deeply about. So, I very much enjoyed reading his take on it uh, from uh, an equity point of view. Well worth the read if you've got some time on a sun lounger coming up anywhere or. Uh, Uh, sitting by the fire on a rainy sunday afternoon uh, certainly give it a go
0: excellent as usual we'll put a link in the wire for this podcast for any readers who want to check it out just in case you didn't catch that name second one is if you could go back in time to when you were finishing school or university and give yourself just one piece of investing advice what would it be
1: Look, it's something that I, I had to learn on the job a little bit, but um, it would be understand the way that a bank funds itself. It really is a very important clearing mechanism in the way that economic activity uh, is derived and, and is transacted. Uh, and understanding, you know, the the differences in the you know the fact that they accept your deposit monies, which is a very short term thing, and then lend them out, for, you know, for long time frames and leverage that, and the implications of that. Uh, I think investors need to think through those types of things because there is a huge amount that can be gained in, in the way that you know, both companies and the macro environment and the economy will, will behave depending on particular triggers in, in that setup.
0: And now, I always like to include a little bit of a disclaimer with this last question. Just to our audience out there, uh, we're not actually suggesting that you go and take all of your money and bet it on a particular level of the US 10-year bond yield in five years' time. This is supposed to be a bit bit of an exercise in long-term thinking and, again, a little bit of fun. So with that being said, what's your best estimate as to where the US 10-year bond yield might be in five years' time?
1: Look, Patrick, so much is going to change in the next five years. Uh, I think unquestionably we will have a period where the economies globally slow down pretty tremendously and bond markets will perform very well. How long the recovery uh, in in that takes and, and the like is, you know, five years we could be on the other side of that recessionary period and, and back into a more constructive phase. But I think interest rates are going to be structurally low for some time. So uh, I think that the secular narratives around the market... don't allow for a material lift in in bond yields and I don't believe that inflation is a secular uh, you know is making a secular comeback I think inflation that we're experiencing in the moment is very cyclical and we should experience it at the top of the business cycle which is very much where we are and as that slows down and these very disinflationary forces kind of return to investors uh, minds they are very bad demographics in the West very high debt burdens technology advances, robotics, automation, uh, the lack of unionization uh, in in labor markets, and again, the bleeding together of essentially two normalized distribution pools of labor, one in the developed world, but importantly, the emerging world moving much closer to the developed world, where very high quality people from the emerging world are coming into the developed world. They're coming very well uh, educated with skills, and they're very happy to work without huge amounts of wage gains. They just wanna be part of the developed world. I think that's depressive uh, you know, for inflation expectations. So to put a number on it, I'm gonna say much closer to 2% uh, than anything else. Uh, I guess up today we're in you know 280s, so I'm expecting the bond market to do okay over the course of time. I guess one thing to remember is that if you do buy uh, bonds and hold them to maturity, as long as the government doesn't uh, fail to exist, which is pretty difficult to do when you have a vast nuclear arsenal, uh, then you can absolutely expect to be repaid and that's why it is called the risk-free rate of return So as much as there is some volatility along that journey for those that are buy and hold uh, You know absolutely what income you should receive and your money back at the end of uh, of that investment horizon
0: Get a return of your capital even if you don't get much return on your capital. That's right. <laughs> absolutely Well, that's it for today um, Charlie, thanks so much for sharing your thoughts and your time with us. Thanks a lot Patrick Well, that's it for another episode of The Rules of Investing. I hope you enjoyed the show. Next episode, I'll be chatting with Kevin Beck, co-head of Global Small and Mid-Caps at Paradise Investment Management. Kevin is based out of Denver, Colorado, so it was great to get an international perspective. Definitely one you won't want to miss. In the meantime, please subscribe to us on iTunes, follow us on Twitter at Livewire Markets, and visit our website, livewiremarkets.com.